It's great to have you joining us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. I'm host Carrie Freeman coming to you in January of 2024 from Atlanta in the Muscogee Creek Territory in the foothills of the Appalachia Mountain Range. Today, we're going to be talking about problems and solutions for transforming America's flawed and often cruel and undemocratic model of wildlife management by speaking with Dr. Anya Heister about her recent book, Beyond the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation, From Lethal to Compassionate Conservation. The book is published by the academic press, Palgrave Macmillan, as part of their animal ethics series. Dr. Heister's book provides a nuanced analysis of the wildlife management system and its faults in the U.S., and a vision for what could be a compassionate conservation alternative that is nonviolent and more democratic and representative of the interests of all Americans, including the interests of all of America's wild animals, not just the so-called game species. And we can't keep leaving wildlife to primarily be managed by a small group of people, namely hunters and trappers, sporting and ranching industries, and rural residents. And instead, we want to put wildlife first in wildlife policies. Let me tell you more about our guest, Dr. Anya Heister. She's an independent researcher, writer, and lifelong animal rights activist, a co-founder of the anti-wildlife trapping nonprofit called Footloose Montana. She's committed to social change for animals and publishes frequently on topics related to wild animal conservation, animal liberation, ethics, and policy. Originally from Germany, Dr. Heister moved to Montana in 2000 after her six-month backpacking travels through East Africa, where she had the opportunity to do some conservation work with elephants. She earned a master's degree in biology from the Johann Wolfgang von Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany, and earned a PhD in interdisciplinary studies specializing in wildlife conservation, policy, and animal ethics. In 2007, she co-founded the nonprofit Footloose Montana, an organization working toward an end of wildlife trapping on public land in Montana, where she worked as an executive director for many years before becoming an active board member up through 2023. At Footloose Montana, she taught the public about the state's cruel wildlife trapping regulations and how to free companion animals from traps and snares. And she was involved in qualifying the trapping issue for the 2016 state ballot, which unfortunately failed to become law, but nevertheless was supported by more than one-third of Montana's voters. Over the past 20 years, Dr. Heister has also worked as a research analyst for nonprofits, a director of publicity, volunteer management, and humane education for a local animal shelter, and as a campaign director for an international animal protection organization. Dr. Heister currently divides her time between working as a certified life coach and writing projects addressing human and animal rights, climate change and wildlife, and plant-based diets and rewilding. Welcome, Dr. Heister. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Let's start by asking, how did your experience at Footloose Montana and as a wildlife advocate lead you to write this book, Beyond the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation? When we started Footless Montana in 2007, we focused um, exclusively on the issue of trapping. And then over time, I found out about the North American model of wildlife conservation, essentially the government-run lethal wildlife management system with hunting and trapping as its cornerstones. And then um, I became more and more aware of the scope and atrocities and the cruelty and the violence involved in hunting and trapping and the sheer number of animals killed. It's been estimate, estimated that um, hunters kill between 100 and 200 million wild animals every wow. year in the U.S. alone. I know, I know. And trappers kill between 6 and 21 million animals, mainly wow. for their fur. And that's not even adding what USDA Wildlife Services uh, does, you know, killing millions of animals on behalf of ranching and uh, life, so-called livestock protection. That is a mass um, slaughter every year. Right. Yeah, it's a mass slaughter every year. And so at the same time, those surveys show that the American public no longer supports the killing of wildlife. 
um, for frivolous reasons, such as fur, trophies, and profit. And yet, most people have never heard of the North American model of wildlife. And that has all, also my, been my experience while working for Footloose. Nobody knows about the model. So the purpose of my book um, is to empower the public with the knowledge about the North American model and to inspire readers to speak up on behalf of wild animals as subjects with needs, interests, and rights, and to demand um, policy changes toward a conservation approach that is grounded in empathy, respect, and compassion. And lastly, I, I really believe that expediting the shift from killing to compassionate conservation is an endeavor um, urgently needed, particularly because we are in the era of climate change and out of control human population growth and um, an accelerating rate of plant and animal species extinction. So I think it's it's very urgent and we need to get this done ASAP. Yeah, I share those goals. Um, uh, what yeah. misconceptions exist for most Americans and how our wildlife management system is managed in terms of what might surprise the average person? Okay. Well, I think um, there are several, uh, multiple misconceptions. Uh, maybe maybe the most common uh, misconception is that the public believes that state wildlife agencies work to protect wild animals and their habitat. This would be called preservation, right? Mm -hmm. But yes. this is far from reality. So what we have instead is conservation, which involves the lethal use of wild animals as so-called natural resources. So the principal activity of state wildlife agencies is the administration of hunting, fishing, and trapping programs, the sale of hunting, fishing, and trapping licenses. And they're also preoccupied with the regulation of hunting, fishing, and trapping seasons. Yeah. yeah. So another uh, very common misconception that I have also heard is uh, that national wildlife refuges um, protect wild animals. And that is just not true. So the, the word refuge actually comes from a French word that means to flee to flee to or from, to flee to a, a place uh, um, of, of rescue, of, yeah. of rest. And so, but, but reality is that the majority of national wildlife refuges in the US allow and even promote hunting and trapping. So just to give you some specifics, um, the National Wildlife Refuges System includes 568 wildlife refuges, right? Mm -hmm. Hunting is allowed and promoted in 340 refuges in 37 wetland management districts. And Wait, trapping over is half or around half. I know, yeah. I know. And so is trapping. Trapping is allowed in uh, more of the of half of the wildlife refuges as well. So the US uh, Fish Fish Wildlife Services manages these refugees and even advertises on its website some of the refuges as quote destination for trophy hunting, end of quote, or as a quote, bucket list destination hunting. Mm. I had no idea, but uh, through my research, I found that out. And so, so, so the federal agency prioritizes hunting despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of visits to wildlife refuges um, are by people who came to watch birds, and to just observe wildlife. So right. it's 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 really incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, so the they, term wildlife refuge, if I may just uh, say yeah, this. Yeah, that's the wrong highly, name for that. I wish it was a refuge. Right. It's a highly misleading term. And it yes. is basically used, in my opinion, to disguise the violent killing of wild animals by hunter and trappers. And so these places are far from places wild animals can flee to in order to find true refuge. And yeah, and that focus more on certain humans' interests above the wild animal interests leads me into my next question. Dr. Hunter, you talk in the book about a human supremacy worldview. 
being a root problem in our North American wildlife management model. Can you explain how su human supremacy is wrapped up with America's wildlife policy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, the term human supremacy was defined by uh, a scholar and author by the name Eileen Christ as, quote, the collective lived belief system that humans are superior to all other life forms and entitled to use them and their places of livelihood, in essence, their wildlife habitat. So that's exactly the paradigm of the North American uh, uh, model, which prioritizes the interests of humans, right? In this case, the hunters and the and the anglers and the trappers, and they treat wild animals as objects and as things. So the North American model does not recognize the intrinsic value of individual animals. So, so the intrinsic value means um, that animals have value um, independent of what we as humans may ascribe to them. So right. the model does not recognize that inherent value. And uh, what they care about is the survival of the population and the species, because that is, in essence, what matters for hunting and trapping. The survival of the species and the wildlife populations matter, and the individual is irrelevant. And so lastly, um, human supremacy, I like that word because it's self-explanatory. And right. it also describes the relationship between uh, humans and wild animals under the under the North American um, uh, model's belief system, which involves cruelty, violence, power, lots of injuries, loss and death, along with pain and animal suffering. And so we see human supremacy thinking in the fact that hunters and trappers believe that they have the right to kill wild animals, right, for their own enter entertainment. And uh, we also see that ideology, um, and you might appreciate that as, an, as a journalist, right, Carrie, um, the use of language. So, for example, the model denies individuality and intrinsic value of individual animals, right? It only talks about the species and, pop and populations. So um, the individual is completely irrelevant. And so that that thinking was actually expressed by by a sportsman. And if if I could quote, if I could read that quote, yeah. um, I think it's very telling. Um, this person said, this hunter said, um, quote, to the sportsman, the death of the game is not what interests him. One does not hunt in order to kill. On the contrary, one kills in order to have hunted. So that means uh, that the animal only matters for the hunters and the trappers experience to have hunted and to have trapped. Then secondly, the under the uh, model's ideology, Wild animals are seen as natural, renewable resources. I love that term. It is so horrible. Yeah. Essentially saying that wild animals are just like corn, right? You just replace Individual one animals. deer with another deer. doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. They're... they're, they're uh, you know, the individual uh, is just like the other. One is just like the other. And it doesn't matter, you know, you kill one and the next one uh, comes, comes around and... We use, or they use the word harvest. Right. Like it's not always like they brings are my blood hot. to a boiling. Yeah. Harvest. Wild animals are being harvested. So that really shows that uh, the view here is that wild animals are in the same category of a plot of wheat or corn that get har gets, gets harvested. But you can't really harvest a sentient being who has his own or her own life to live and is an agent of their own world. And finally, the model defines wild animals as human property. And so just to give you, do we still have time? Um, oh, for yeah, me? you can read the quote. Yeah, so, so an example is the Montana Ferber trapping regulations, which protects uh, the animal in a trap or snare as the trapper's property. And so the regulations read, a person may not destroy, disturb, or remove any trap or snare belonging to another person or remove wildlife from a trap or snare belonging to another person without the permission of the owner of the trap or snares. So that means wow. that the wild animals, as soon as the animal gets caught in a trap 
uh, or snare, um, that animal becomes private property of the trapper. And that animal has no protection whatsoever, none. And so you might get, uh, if you interfere with a trapping and you might rescue an animal. And you would want to rescue somebody suffering in like a leg right. or something. Yeah, you are committing uh, an illegal act. Hmm. So, so a trapped animal is completely at the mercy of the trapper. The trapper can torture, stomp to death or do whatever with the animal caught in his snare or trap. Wow. If you're just joining us on Radio Free Georgia, this is In Tune to Nature. I'm host Carrie Freeman talking about problems and solutions for transforming America's flawed, unscientific, undemocratic, and human-centered model of wildlife management by speaking with Dr. Anya Heister about her recent book, Beyond the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation, From Lethal to Compassionate Conservation. Dr. Heister, there's a legacy going back to President Teddy Roosevelt of how hunters are the so-called real conservationists who save wilderness and wildlife and thus need to remain in charge. Can you explain how over the last decade or so, wildlife scholars, some of them have critiqued this hunting-centric myth of wildlife conservation mm -hmm. due to its illogic and mismanagement? Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So there's actually a long list of critiques. So, but let me, yeah, let so me give just you a some... summary for us. <laughs> point <laughs> right. Some of the reasons why oh, where it's a to problematic start. myth. So, yeah. Right. So let me give you some context first, if I, if I may. Um, with the arrival of European settlers came the largest slaughter of wild animals the continent had ever seen. Your listeners might be um, familiar with um, the slaughter of the bison, you know, yeah. when during the 1800s, 1900s, uh, between 30 and 60 million bisons were here in this on this con continent. And by the time by by 1890, a thousand bison were um, actually survived, survived. So were left, were left. Uh, billions of passenger pigeons were killed. And the species eventually went extinct. Trappers over several decades uh, killed um, tens of millions of beavers. Mm -hmm. But what really concerned sport hunters like Teddy Roosevelt, who was a wealthy, influential, um, obviously, because he was the president of the United yeah. States at some point. Um, but what, so what really concerned sport hunters was the fact that the market hunters killed enormous numbers of antelope, elk, and deer. So essentially the animals that the sport hunters, like Teddy Roosevelt, were interested in killing themselves. So in 1897, Teddy Roosevelt and a few other wealthy and influential men founded the Boone and Crockett Club. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you are familiar with that. It's the world's oldest trophy hunting organization. And it's headquartered actually right here in Missoula, Montana, where I am. Ah. And so they started to promote regulations and laws that would ensure the survival of wild animals in order to save hunting. So, and that's important to remember. Not uh, they, they did not what they did um, out of the goodness of their hearts or out of concern for the animals, but the concern was over losing hunting. Mm -hmm. So these sport hunters started structuring various councils, game commissions. And so in the process, they created the state wildlife agencies uh, that then managed game animals on their behalf. So that's what we're dealing with uh, today, right? So um, in in over the, the last decade, as you as you mentioned, a long list of scholars um, or several scholars have uh, critiqued um, that model. And first of all, I, I I would like to say that really, when you look at it, the roots of the North American model are firmly planted in colonialism. Mm. patriarchy and speciesism right the north the north american model is essentially a white men's approach to wildlife conservation and it's a lethal one wow. so um a few years ago michael nelson and other scholars um have said that the uh, the model presents a false narrative by essentially because the narrative of of 
that historic development of how hunters allegedly saved wildlife um, from market hunting um, gives only credit to the hunters and they completely excluded or they exclude other organizations, other individuals that were involved and all helped um, animals to survive, wild animals to survive. So, for example, the Audubon Society, the Massachusetts hey. Audubon Society, right, was founded by two women and they helped eventually with the passing of the Migratory Birds Treaty of 1916. And then um, my one of my favorite uh, characters is uh, Rosalie Edge, a leading conservationist from New York. Uh, she lived between 1877 and 1962. She was a suffrage and an animal champion. And she was so disgusted by bird hunters' uh, cruelty that she bought a 1,400 acres area at some point and she banned the hunters and created the world's first sanctuary for raptors. And that, by the way, is the same sanctuary that helped Rachel Carson with wow. the discovery. Yeah, with the discovery of the horrendous effects of DDT on birds and other wildlife animals. Well, uh, it was a animals. place where there weren't bullets and, and different DDT use. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and and also today, many organizations, many individuals help. Uh, and contribute enormous amounts of money and uh, time to help fund and protect uh, wildlife and habitat. But the narrative of the hunt hunting community likes to completely ignore that. Michael Nelson and others also have pointed out that there is an ethical fallacy where the model supporters argue that because hunting was a part of wildlife management in the past, it has to continue in the future. So the fallacy is where... For example, we, I mean, nobody would argue that just because child labor was part of our history, it should continue into the future. So, right. and um, yeah, so there is much more to critique. Yeah. And like building off of that, um, my next question is asking kind of about the lack of democracy, because I've been using the term undemocratic to describe wildlife policy, because so many of us have so little say in wildlife protection in our current system. Can you explain the problems with how the wildlife agencies are set up and funded in the U.S., such like how governors have more control than citizens of each state? Like a lot of us are bird watchers, we like hiking or different kinds of things, but we don't seem to have a say in protecting uh, animals in our own state. And like, unless I'm out there hunting and trapping them, I kind of don't have, I don't count. That is so true. Um, so essentially the North American model is a system that benefits hunters and trappers. It victimizes wild animals and it excludes the non-hunting and non the so-called non-consumptive public, right? And yeah. it is because of the long-time involvement of hunters in creating governmental agencies and the laws and regulations and policies related to wild animals that we now have that system that is designed to benefit hunters and trappers and that it excludes the general public. And that system also gives, like you mentioned, that system gives enormous power to governors. So for example, in Montana, Governor Gianforte, who is himself an avid hunter and trapper, he has the power to appoint the director of the state wildlife agency. He appoints each of the seven commissioners who mm. then set hunting and trapping seasons and set kill quota for species and so on. The commission members are often required to have a hunting um, or a trapping license, among other requirements. So, so, so you see, right? I mean, the public is uh, completely excluded right there. Yeah. So as a result, then, the commissions represent hunters and trappers' interests and give hunters and trappers a voice to shape policies, while right. the general public has no influence whatsoever. Then uh, the second component to that exclusion of the public is, is the funding me mechanism that you just mentioned. So, uh, and Roosevelt was, and the, the, the Boone and Crockett Club, Crockett Club um, initiated that, uh, what we sometimes call, uh, or what they sometimes call user pay system, right? Where hunters and trappers 
pay for to get the license to then use and kill uh, animals, wild animals. So that that the history of that funding mechanism goes back to 1937, when the Federal Aid in Wildlife Restoration Act, known as Pittman and Robertson Act, was passed by Congress. And so the funds for that comes from um, come from an, a ten or sometimes 11% excise tax on handguns, rifles, machine guns, arrows, and ammunition. Yeah. So every time somebody buys a gun, 10 or 11% goes into of that purchase price goes into that fund. Those funds then go to state wildlife agencies and most of the money, and we're talking millions of, of dollars, go to support hunters and hunting programs, including the R3 program, um, which stands for recruit, retain, and reactivate hunters. So maybe the most important thing uh, to remember is that the, the more hunting licenses a state wildlife agency sells, I'm, I'm simplifying here a little bit. It's, it's a little bit more complicated, but essentially the more hunting licenses a state wildlife agency sells, the more money it gets from the P, uh, Pittman and Robertson Act funds. So there's a clear incentive for state wildlife agencies to focus on hunters and trappers and exclude and others. gun sales in general, it sounds like, which is right. not gun what we sales. need. Yeah. Right. The yeah. interesting uh, part, though, is that um, a, a 2015 survey showed that hunters are actually no longer the main contributors to the Pittman and Robertson Fund, but it is actually the urban target shooters who are not hunters. And so given these trends and in recognition of ongoing declines of hunters that would threaten the survival of the model if unchecked, um, a bill was introduced in 2019. And the goal of that bill is to provide even more funding to state wildlife agencies to recruit hunters. So there you just see the, the bias and uh, where the focus of state wildlife agencies is. Right. Like they're not recruiting people just to um, volunteer to do wonderful things in the habitat or to rewild it. No. Like, because that's not, we all know that when financial incentives are set up in certain ways, you know, they incentivize certain behaviors. So it would make sense that we incentivize things that worked for wildlife. And I wanted to give you a, a chance to also give an example of some kind of mismanagement by governors. Um, I know in your book, you gave some examples in your state of Montana of lethal mismanagement of wolves there and how the Montana governor and the state agencies are allowed to persecute and kill wolves outside of Yellowstone Park rather than work to protect them and to coexist with them. Um, and just to, like, uh, I know you could go on and talk about this for half an hour, but yeah. could you just in like a minute or two give us, uh, tell us a little bit about that destructive mismanagement in your state of wolves? Okay. Yeah. So, so basically, uh, I, I really try to be <laughs> brief. Yeah. Um, since wolves lost their protection under the Endangered Species uh, Act, they've been treated with hate and, and disdain. There's no empathy. There's no compassion for wolves in Montana, in Idaho, and in Wyoming, for example. Um, and just to give you an example, in February 2021, um, our governor, Greg Gianforti, um, he was he and his wife were near Yellowstone National Park because allegedly his uh, or apparently his wife wanted to shoot a bison. And so they were near Yellowstone National Park when he got a call or he was somehow informed that a wolf was caught in one of the leg hole traps that he and another trapper had set. So he then traveled to the trap site where he then shot a young black wolf caught in the trap. That wolf was known to some wildlife watchers as Max, and he was outfitted with a research collar and had just come out of Yellowstone National Park, probably in search of a mate and um, or a territory, yeah. you know. The shooting the wolf, even more egregious, uh, was an illegal act because Governor Gianforte did not have a certificate from a wolf trapping education class, which is required before one can legally trap wolves in Montana. So what happens then? Uh, the governor called the killing of the of Max an honor, while an editor of the Montana newspaper wrote that this was hardly any different from shooting a chained 
dog, mm. you know. Yeah. So killing wolves uh, just coming out of Yellowstone National Park happens all the time. It's very common. In addition, we have so so the situation for wolves is just really horrendous in Montana. Also in 2021, the legislature, we we now have a hunter, trapper, uh, uh animal exploitation dominated uh legislature. Uh, which passed an avalanche of anti-wildlife and anti-wolf bills. And so so the result of all of this is that the wolf killing season has now been extended to six and a half months each year. It runs from September through mid-March. One individual can now kill up to 20 wolves per Per season, 10 wolves can be killed through hunting, 10 through trapping. They can kill, they can be shot, they can uh, uh, killed in leg hole traps, in neck snares, everything goes. We also, we also get this. We have a bounty program mm-hmm. um, on wolves where a nonprofit organization called uh, Foundation for Wildlife Management, a very misleading term, of course, pays either 500 or or $1,000 per wolf killed in Idaho and Montana. Fish, Wildlife and Parks, our state wildlife agency, is uh, considering of reducing wolves from maybe 700, they estimate 1,000, down to 450 wolves. So Mm. you can see um, selling wolf hunting and trapping license is a very lucrative business for the state wildlife agency. You know, they made uh, they raked in three hundred ninety thousand dollars in during the 2018 and 2019 season. So but compare this to wolves in Yellowstone National Park who generate between 60 and 70 million dollars from park visitors, you know, so the the, the, I mean, it's so so out of whack, right, with the I mean, like the. You have a few people in government agencies and and some people who, you know, live in Montana that also have anti-wolf viewpoints. But the majority of people, the millions of people that come to Yellowstone and Glacier every year in Montana, they're there to see wolves and bears and and bison. And um, they they love them and they're the superstars of the parks. But like then the minute the the that beloved animal leaves a park, he could get his head shot off, you know, by somebody. And so it's it is ridiculous. Yeah, it's, even it's even from an economic standpoint, the the money that the hunting brings yeah. in is so little compared to the what the economy gets from all the visitors who love the wildlife. That's so true. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. Um. Well. Dr. Heister, in this segment of the show, I wanted to focus on issues of cruelty versus compassion towards wildlife. And you dedicate chapter seven in your book to the topic of crime scenes in the woods, the North American model and cruelty against wild animals. Can you give us some examples from that chapter on how existing laws don't actually protect wild animals? Maybe that's what we would think (laughs) the, the laws would do, but and the laws often just enable constant and large-scale violence of humans towards free-living non-human animals or, or wildlife. I can tell you that it was it was really rough to write that chapter, to do the yeah. research for the chapter and write that chapter. It was really rough. It describes in detail the violence and the cruelty involved in trapping, uh, bear hunting. Um, I think I give the example of wildlife killing contests, um, prairie dog shooting, and and even vehicle killing, and and something that's called coyote whacking. So, yeah. so basically, uh, what's important to understand is that when we talk about cruelty against animals, we usually mean cruel treatment of animals under direct human control, right? So, such uh, companion animals, our right. dogs, and so forth. So, but we don't address. And we can't address the violence and cruelty involved in hunting and trapping. And why is that? Because wildlife management activities, such as hunting and trapping, are excluded from any cruelty laws. So you could torture a deer, yes. for example, and that's fine. It's legal. Yes. I yeah. mean, I mean, who's who monitors what hunters and trappers do out there? Right. Nobody. Right. Nobody. Nobody sees what these people uh, do. To wild animals. We know that trappers uh, often beat and stomp animals uh, in trap in, in traps to death, you know. So um 
so the example um, that Im impaling, uh, drowning, and suffocating an animal is now considered a federal crime since uh, I believe 2019. Um, but but it is not a crime when trappers and hunters uh, do it. And not so fair. look at this. I mean, striking an animal with a high-powered bow or shooting a bird out of the sky, let her crash to the ground and then break that bird's neck or drowning a beaver caught in a bear trap set in water or suffocate a wolf in a neck snare. These are all common methods trappers and hunters use uh, to catch and finish off, as they call it, the helpless and exhausted and suffering animals. So... I mean, it's, 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 it's incredible. It doesn't make any sense, really. It makes no it's sense. similar it makes to no sense. also how industries, like who, I'm getting off topic here, but who farm yeah. animals or something, they get away with all kinds of cruelty. But you or I, not that we would, but <laughs> can't do those kinds of same things to animals because we're not making money off of them. So then that would be considered cruel and we could go to jail. But meanwhile, industries and, and, and hunters and trappers can, um, do all kinds of cruel things with immunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, uh, I talk in my book, uh, quite extensively about, um, the, sp uh, the bear spring hunt, uh, hunt, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'm sorry, spring, uh, spring bear hunting, and so black bears are under siege by hunters uh, for the majority of, of the entire year. Mm -hmm. um, spring bear hunts starts in Montana, mid-April and through the end of May. And so that is the time when bears are most vulnerable. And, and hunters exploit... Coming out of hibernation and not having yeah, come for so long. Right. They're weak. Uh, they're hungry. They're preoccupied with with uh, searching for food. You know, and mothers have babies at that time. They have babies. They have cubs. And uh, they get shot. So... Um, in, in Montana, it is, uh, illegal to, to shoot a female, um, bear with, with cubs. But what ends up happening is the mother, uh, comes out of her den. She stashes, hides her cubs, and then appears as a single bear on the landscape. Then she gets shot, shot, and the cubs end up starving, starving. to death. Yeah. I, yeah. Or freezing. So in, 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 in t just to give you, um, an example in, in Montana in 2020, a total of almost six, 1,600 bears were shot by hunters. And, and of the 1,039 bears killed in the spring, in the spring alone, 342 were females. How many of them had cubs? Probably the majority. Nobody keeps track. So that means more animals are killed than you have yes. numbers for because all, their, all the cubs are dying. Yes, exactly slowly exactly. that's awful yeah. yeah yeah we have wildlife killing contests which are gaining uh, popularity nationwide you know where teams of hunters compete to shoot the most animals or the the heaviest animal or the smallest animal we have vehicle and coyote uh, whacking going on in montana i mean it's 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 just really so disgusting it's sadistic really, really. and it, oh, it's it not sadistic. good for society either for our, our values and um, kind of in promoting altruism and caring. And so that'll be, we're going to move on to, to that topic because you spend a lot of time, especially in the last chapter of your book, it's very solutions oriented and telling us how to abandon human entitlement and wildlife policy and instead focus on empathy, compassion, and rights for free living animals. What would it mean to let empathy be a guide in wildlife management. So I know that uh, some people might see empathy and compassion as, uh, let's say, too soft or uh, unscientific to be ecologically effective guiding principles. But let me ask you this. First of all, given that most problems addressed by conservation are caused by humans, why should animals pay the price? Right. And let me also uh, uh, let me ask you also this. Um, what would our society be like uh, without empathy and compassion? Mm -hmm. So in our human to human uh, uh, interaction, we don't we not only value, let's say, integrity, honesty, right? But we yes. highly value empathy and compassion, right? That's what we want so, kids in elementary school to learn. 
<laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Feel yeah. you uh, develop the, the capacity of uh, fe of feeling yourself into the shoes. Put yourself into the shoes of someone else, right? Yeah. And then uh, help that person or that animal when you can. So, so we value empathy and compassion in our human to human interaction. So, why should we not apply that same value system in our in our interaction? in our interactions with wild animals. It makes no sense that we don't. I, would some you know. people argue that it's like, oh, well, we can't be too empathetic and emotional in looking at wildlife policy because in, they might say emotions or empathy are, are not part of how other animals might kill each other or like how a wolf might need to kill um, a bison or a deer to survive. And so they can't be too um sympathetic about that so why should we you know like that i think that's that that's how they're thinking of it like oh nature's can be kind of a cruel place although it's also has a lot of compassion and love too but they're only kind of looking at the the harsher side of it and saying well that we have to apply that same kind of harsh um non-emotional approach to the way we quote unquote manage wildlife so I would say that uh, uh, Mark, the great Mark Beckhoff, um, scholar, evolutionary biologist, great champion of animals, wild and domestic, has said that um, his research shows that 70% of uh, wildlife uh, to wildlife interactions are positive. Nice. Meaning yeah. these interactions are 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 uh, supportive. Uh, they might be based in friendship. They might be ba based in uh, in kindness, in compassion, in caring. Exactly. Yeah. So and and you know and and going along with this <laughs> myth that we are so such it's a, such an extraordinary species. Why don't we going along those lines? Why don't we then focus on? on empathy and compassion, because that is really a strong characteristic, a shining trait, as I call it, of human beings. We yeah. can be empathetic, empathetic and compassionate. And, and also, I think, um, well, first of all, I think the relationship that is presented by uh, to us by hunters and trappers, which is grounded in, in violence and uh, and 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 power and control and cruelty is not what this world, this planet needs anymore. We're okay. in the era of climate change, uh, species extinctions, and Mass so, shooting. so what we need, yeah. we need to learn to connect to other animals and to nature, and that's of the utmost importance, I believe. And so yeah. we will only protect what we love. So I don't see empathy and compassion as weak motivations for guiding wildlife management. In fact. I think it's the opposite. There's a lot of science out there that shows the benefits of a compassionate way of being, and I, and really, yeah, I can't psychologically think of, beneficial to everyone. <laughs> yes, to to everyone, and so so I think there is a very rational component in compassion. Compassion yeah. is not something weak. Compassion is something where we act on behalf of others. So we uh, it's and, needed and I think to the, keep society together. It's biologically smart and rational <laughs> to be part of a group and to keep the community healthy and supportive, you know. So, yes, but I know, and I yes. liked how in your book you talked about like the irony of how the hunters are allowed to, like in some kind of wildlife meetings that they have open to the public or something to debate. You'll see that hunters can express emotions if they have love for nature and the outdoors and their rights to be out there with their son or whatever, enjoying time together. But then like when the animal advocates try to bring that kind of love and emotion in, it's acting like they, that has no place. <laughs> like if you're not a hunter, otherwise you're just too sentimental or something. Oh yeah, too sentimental, too emotional, too, uh, and so naive, you know, because yeah. we're, we're concerned about the animals, you know. But but go to, I mean, I've been to so many uh, agency public meetings, and I have seen how emotional hunters and uh, trappers are, especially when we when we suggest to curtail some of the most atrocious forms of uh, trophy hunting or trapping. If we want to close something down, you know, I mean, they get all upset and they get angry. 
and they have emotional outbursts, you know, but we can't show compassion and empathy. So uh, let me just, let me just, the last thing I want to say about uh, uh, compassion is that I believe that compassion has a very rational component. And that is that we recognize that we're not the most important species on this planet and that we share the planet with millions of other animal species who also have the right to exist and to flourish. Right, which makes rational sense. (laughs) Yes, which makes rational sense. (laughs) If you're just joining us on Radio Free Georgia, this is In Tune to Nature. I'm host Carrie Freeman talking about problems and solutions for transforming America's flawed and often violent and non-scientific an undemocratic model of wildlife management by speaking with Dr. Anya Heister about her recent book, Beyond the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation, From Lethal to Compassionate Conservation. Dr. Heister, as part of the improved transformation of wildlife management in the U.S. that you're promoting, what would be different about the compassionate conservation model of wildlife management that you and others propose? Like, what would a compassionate conservation model look like? Mm-hmm. So, so I just mentioned uh, the great Mark Beckoff, and yeah, who, who among others, um, who among others, uh, like Daniel Ramp, for example, from the Center of Compassionate Conservation. Or actually, uh, Mark Beckoff has said, um, or has pointed to uh, compassion as a must for advancing global conservation. And so he and his colleague, Daniel Ramp from the Center of Compassionate Conservation in Sydney, Australia, they have written, quote, a compassionate conservation approach aims to safeguard Earth's biological diversity while retaining a commitment to treating individuals with respect and concern for their well-being. So in in proposing a a compassionate uh, conservation model, they have um, defined uh, four principles. Uh, First is first do no harm. That principle is adopted from the Hippocratic Oath and means that we need to be careful when we intervene and Mm -hmm. we need to do good instead of harming others. The second uh, tenet is individuals matter. That principle acknowledges the intrinsic value of individual wild animals and rejects the killing of these animals. The third one is um, inclusivity of all wild animals. And it basically acknowledges the intrinsic value of both the individual animal and the collective they belong to, whether we label them as abundant, as an abundant animal or as abundant species, as native, as non-native, invasive or whatever. And the last, the fourth uh, tenet is called peaceful coexistence. And that principle calls for the recognition that our interactions with wild animals should not be based in aggression and violence, but in compassion and which would overall help us to coexist with other beings. So so in general, the the approach of compassionate conservation brings empathy and compassion into the foreground, so to speak, of decision-making and policy developing process. And it rejects the notion of wild animals as natural renewable resources. And instead it treats these animals as sentient beings with needs and interests that need to be protected. And lastly, I think that compassionate conservation uh, would help us create a relationship with wild animals that's motivated by, yeah, pro-social emotions Mm -hmm. such as love, empathy, and compassion. And so if we applied compassion to conservation, we would, for example, ask what do wild animals need from us? Yes. Isn't that an yeah, interesting question? Like, what can we get out of them? How many do we want? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So to me, a compassionate conservation model makes absolute sense. It would benefit the planet. It would benefit other animals. And it would be- benefit uh, ourselves as well. And I like how you also put it acknowledges the role that we've played in like introduced species that people would call invasive or um, why some animals kind of might seem, quote unquote, overpopulated because we've gotten rid of their predators or, you know, like. So then when we're coming up with solutions, we recognize that we have to change or we're the cause of things and we're not going to blame deer for being so-called overpopulated um, but maybe reintroduce um, bears and mountain lions and and wolves to the area. Like, 
or just things where we are going to change our behavior, not just asking them to change or reduce their number. Exactly, exactly. That is so important, uh, Carrie, because we always ask uh, and we always intervene with the lives and of 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 animals, but we never yeah. ask ourselves what can we do? How how must we change? You know, in yeah. order to meet their needs and interests. Yeah. Well, um, our wrap-up question is, you've helped us see why and how the U.S. wildlife mismanagement system should be transformed to be more wildlife-friendly, scientific, humane, democratic. How can everyday Americans get involved in this effort? Like maybe even if they live in urban areas like I do in Atlanta, and maybe if they haven't had much interest or experience with wildlife before, could they still get involved in wildlife management? Well, I would actually, I mean, I, I would say that there are great ideas out there in the literature uh, on how to uh, reform uh, or disrupt traditional lethal wildlife management. So I would suggest learning about them and get educated. Um, start with my book. And, uh, I know we need to, and, and because uh, it's an academic book, it kind of costs a lot of money, which happens sometimes. Yeah. So I would say like, I like to ask my local library to get academic books so that then everyone can read the book, even if it, they can't afford it. So anyway, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great yeah. idea. Yes. Yeah. And then I would also say, um, always attend state wildlife agency meetings and speak up for wild animals. I know it is super frustrating, but uh, take a friend with you. Don't get, don't go along. Take a friend with you and go and speak up for the protection of wild animals. Um Bring attention to the plight of wild animals by writing letters to your local newspapers or on uh, social media. Always get involved. Always speak up for wild animals. Support those organizations that file lawsuits on behalf of wild animals. So that's my personal view. I think the only language that uh, state wildlife agencies understand is when they're sued. Right. So, um if, like, uh, like the if Center for Biological Diversity of... has so many lawyers, <laughs> so so many environmental yes. organizations have and to have it, lawyers. Yes, it makes sense. It makes yeah. sense. It's the only way to really change uh, things uh, drastically. And um, so, get involved in your state's legislature. You know, where all too often bills detrimental to wild animals are being passed. Ask your representative. If yeah. they support hunting and trapping and pressure them to reject at least trophy hunting and trapping and right. endorse, ask them to endorse compassionate conservation. And then lastly, one thing that is very close to my heart is the fact that everyone can make a profound difference for all animals, domestic and wild, and for the health of the planet more broadly, really, by switching even slowly to a plant-based diet. So... There is this intersection uh, between ranching and wolves being killed on behalf of livestock uh, uh, protection. So if you care about predators such as wolves, you know, start changing your diet and uh, switch, you know, however fast you can to a plant based diet. And it also, yeah, that's we've talked about a lot on the other shows, how it would free up a lot of land to be rewilded if we weren't using it as pasture land that could then be habitat for wildlife. So yeah, that it's people looking into the the kind of animal agribusiness and environmental wildlife destruction connections is important. Well, that's the end of our show, but I want to thank you, Dr. Anya Heister, for being with us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. Thanks for taking on this major issue of wildlife management transformation in the United States, because it's decades overdue. Well, thank you so much, uh, Carrie. I really appreciate um, you inviting me, and I thank your listeners uh, for listen listening to me. And um, yeah, thank you very much. It's This was very exciting. Yeah. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to In Tune to Nature, broadcasting every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, online at wrfg.org and on Atlanta radio station 89.3 FM. We post action items, news, and podcasts on the show's website, facebook.com forward slash to nature. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, its board staff, or volunteers. I'm one of those volunteers. I'm host Carrie Freeman asking you to please support independent, non-commercial media like Radio Free Georgia. And remember to take care of yourself and others. 
including the wild animal neighbors we share our lands with. Thank you for listening. Cheers. <laughs>